Hello, hello. This is Nicole Falcone, and you are listening to The Fifth Spot. This is the podcast where I try to figure out who my fifth favorite director is and perhaps tear down my entire top five in the process. So we are at episode 10 this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. We are first going to talk about a couple other things. This episode will be dropping on October 28th. So one, that day is the gotcha day for my beloved mutt Maggie. Two years ago, on the 28th of October, I went to the Humane Society and came home with a dog. <laughs> was proven to be a wonderful sibling for uh, our baby, Daisy Clover. They're sisters, they're best buds. They have a complicated neurotic relationship, just like everybody else. We also celebrate her birthday on that day. She is seven and she is a joy. She is definitely the the perkiest one in our household. She's the one who gets excited about everything and is joyful and gets us all up our off of our asses. So happy, happy birthday, my dear Maggie. Happy gotcha day. We love you so, so big. Okay. And the second thing, since this is October 28th, we are nearing my very, very favorite holiday, Halloween. So I have to say something about it. I've obviously already talked about some horror films just in the process of talking about different directors. And I was trying to figure out, should I talk about favorite horror films? Should I talk about like a top five, top 10? It's so hard because, you know, there's 70s horror films, 80s horror films, classic, modern, comedic, the intentionally comedic, the unintentionally comedic, slashers, paranormal, thought-provoking. I just, there's so many. And I, I obviously am a huge lover of horror. So there's so much to appreciate, so much to enjoy. It's very difficult to whittle that down. But I have been watching on Shudder, I have been watching their special series of 101 scariest movie moments of all time. And it was broken up into, I think, eight different parts. I just finished the top 10 earlier today. And boy, that was a blast. And oh, they had a lot, a lot of, of scenes on that list that definitely would rank high with me, including scenes from Audition, which is one of the most disturbing films I've ever seen. Hereditary, which is one of the greatest and most horrifying things I have ever seen with these eyes. I actually, I love Hereditary. I think Hereditary is one of the best things to come out of horror or cinema in the past past decade or so. So what else did they have in there? They had some from Halloween. They had The Exorcist, Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's three scenes that all rank real high up there for me as the scariest things ever, ever filmed. Obviously, when uh, Leatherface first appears unexpectedly in the farmhouse, it's weird, it's creepy, it's scary. And then the door slams, it's, it's iconic. And you're just sitting there thinking, what the hell just happened? What did I just watch? And it's terrifying. And then the scene in the 
woods with uh, Leatherface chasing Sally is one of the most tense things I've ever seen. The first time I ever saw it, I was alone in my bedroom. I was living with my mom at the time. I was about 19, but she was not home. I was watching a lot of horror movies at this time. By this time, I considered myself quite jaded, quite over the sensitivities that I had as a youngster and just catching up on the essential horror. And I'm sitting there watching Texas Chainsaw in the dark. And I made it through that scene with with Leatherface where he first appears. But the scene where he shows up in the woods, one, you think it's going to happen one way and then it comes out of nowhere. And then this scene just goes on and on and on, the scene where he's chasing Sally. So much so that at some point, it's just like, I didn't want her to die, but I'm thinking, oh my God, just like kill her already and put her out of my, put it out of my misery, you know? <laughs> because it was just so terrifying. And I actually had to jump up and turn on the light at that point. I did keep watching the movie and I have seen the movie countless times since then. I've, I just watched it a couple of weeks ago, actually. I've seen it many, many times. It's one of my all-time favorite horror films. But those two scenes and then the final scene of the film are all, I think, the scariest things in the, in the film. The final scene, especially, again, because it's just sort of tense and by that point you're just like completely emotionally drained gutted no pun intended but it's also terrifying because it's just in broad daylight i always find things that are in broad daylight terrifying because it looks like you're safe nothing to worry about and then boom something comes up and it's like nope it can get you anytime. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw is a prime example of that. Midsummer did a really great job with that. And there's another film, actually, that I think is terrifying in a scene because of that. But I am going to be talking about that one a little later. But anyway, Texas Chainsaw, definitely way up there. But one scene in a horror film that was not on this list out of 101 Scariest movie scenes. The scene was not on the list, which is shocking to me. Now, I don't want to give it away if you haven't seen it, but I'm just going to say the movie is Don't Look Now. It's a 1970s horror film starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. It is based on a short story by Daphne Demir. I have read the short story. I read it after I saw the movie. It's it's a really brilliantly crafted short story and the adaptation is phenomenal but at the time that i first saw this movie i had no awareness of the short story or the film or i had no idea what it was for the most part this film is a really quiet kind of familial drama dealing with things like grief and marriage and parenthood and just all these things honestly hereditary is about many of those things i i feel like it probably owes a lot to don't look now same amazing effect so don't look now it's this very quiet slowly unfolding uh story that you really think is one thing and it's not and i'm just gonna say because if you've never seen it i want you to have the same experience i did <laughs> but you won't because I'm I'm telling you something's going to happen. But the the final scene of the film is I would probably rank that as the scariest 
scene I've ever seen in a horror film. I saw it when I was older. I watched it, I think I've seen it three or four times now, but the first two times I saw it, not once, but the first two times I saw this film, both times I could not sleep after and not because I'm an insomniac, because I could not get this image out of my head and I was absolutely terrified, which for me is a huge, huge thing, especially as an adult. I think it's just the most startling, shocking, horrifying scene in a horror film. So it would get my vote. So Shudder, Don't Look Now, that would have been in my top five, at least. I, I'm, I'm all there with you with the Texas Chainsaw getting number, number one, but Don't Look Now, a gross oversight. All right, so this week's director is David Fincher. I've got to be honest. He is a biggie for me. I'm very excited to talk about him. David Fincher was born in Denver, Colorado, which also happens to be where I was born. So that's pretty cool. He did move to California when he was very young, like around two years old. And then he moved to Oregon as a teenager. He became fascinated with filmmaking when he was eight. He saw a documentary on the making of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and he said it was the ultimate magic trick to him, like that he'd been watching movies, but he'd never thought of them as something that wasn't, you know, just happening, that it had to be created, that there was all these strings being pulled and such and it it just completely fascinated him and he began making films with this eight millimeter camera as so many filmmakers have he worked as a projectionist at a theater for a while in oregon he was an, a production assistant at the local television station i happened to work in the control room of a a small television station at one point so i'm i'm not saying that there's really a correlation between me and David Fincher. I'm I'm just I'm just throwing these these facts out there. So Fincher, while he was like trying to get experience, he became a visual effects producer with George Lucas. He was hired by Industrial Light and Magic in the 80s, the early 80s, as an assistant cameraman and a photographer. He worked on Return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So that's pretty cool. I did not know that. I learned that when I did a little, little more research on his background. So that's that's pretty cool. So in 1984, he left Industrial Light Magic and he he directed a television commercial for the American Cancer Society and it it depicted a fetus smoking a cigarette. Now, I was like six at this time, but I'm pretty sure I remember this commercial. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to see if I can find it. If I can, I'm going to post it <laughs> on Instagram or Twitter or both because I'm pretty sure I remember this. But this this strange little commercial brought him to the attention of, you know, producers in LA. So he he wound up going there. He directed TV commercials. He continued to do that. It's pretty high profile, but he really hated doing them. So he, he kind of went over into music videos, which similar to what we were talking about last week with Spike Jones and so many directors 
started that way, have continued that way. Just a lot of music video directors. He considered it actually his his own film school because he did not go to film school. He just he just learned, which is uh, pretty great. But he le- he said what he said about working on music videos is that he learned how to work efficiently within a small budget and time frame, which is extremely useful for a filmmaker, especially someone who's trained to just get in there, get stuff made. So some of his videos that he directed are pretty big deals. Um, they're ones I sure know, and you probably know them too. I did know that he had directed most all of these, but you may not. So he directed the video for Freedom 90 by George Michael. That is the that was his one of his most successful ones. That's the one with the models, all the supermodels, Cindy Crawford's in the bathtub. There's, you know, and George or George Michael doesn't even really appear in the video. It's all all these. It's a great video anyway. Freedom 90, if you've never seen it. He also did Aerosmith's Janie's Got a Gun, another great one. Billy Idol's Cradle of Love. I loved this video as a kid. And it, it's a really intricate video. It has a lot going on. And it's it's all because Billy Idol had had a motorcycle accident recently. So he was still recovering from that. So he couldn't really like film the video in the way that maybe he would have originally wanted to. So David Fincher directed this video and it, it, it's it's just hilarious. It's It's basically this like really buttoned up guy and this, this girl comes over to I don't even remember what it is to use his phone. To, I don't know. But she winds up basically just like having a party, a one-woman party in his uh, apartment. <laughs> and it's hilarious. And Billy Idol, you only really see like flashes of him, like his art on the wall and things like that. It's a great video. David Fincher, Fincher directed it. He also did some of Madonna's biggest. He did Express Yourself. He did Vogue, Oh Father, Bad Girl. I'd say Vogue and Express Yourself were obviously the most probably iconic there um really amazing and especially express yourself i think get the lighting the the quality of the film it, it i think it looks i think you can kind of tell when Steve fincher if you know so it's interesting that that's where he was learning all of his uh, techniques and yeah but thanks to his learning we are all gifted with these amazing videos so all of this you know led to him finally being able to get into directing film. So the first film that he was hired to direct was Aliens 3. So that was his directorial debut. That's the third Alien movie after Alien and Aliens. First Alien, of course, was directed by Ridley Scott. Aliens, the second, was a James Cameron. And then David Fincher got an opportunity to do this third entry, which was really... Um, exciting at the time i remember like posters for it and the whole the bitches back thing and so there was a lot of anticipation surrounding it but then it was released and it was not very well received it was it's considered a lot weaker than the former films a big disappointment david fincher he had a lot of studio intervention, a lot of script changing. Many years later, he talked about how how the producers basically just didn't trust him and kind of controlled everything and changed everything. And he he pretty much, you know, 
just disowned the film, says that no one hates it more than me, he says. So it was an awful experience for him. He was not able to do anything that he wanted to do with it. And so after that, let's see, that was in... 1992 after that he took a little bit of a break tried to gather himself figure out what he was going to do next because that was just such a horrible experience he did commercials and videos for a little while again and and then he came back and directed his second film which was a complete game changer in 1995 the world was gifted with the film seven So Seven is a film that Roger Ebert at the time said was one of the darkest and most merciless films ever made in Hollywood mainstream at the time. And that's a good thing. So Seven starred Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow, one of her very early roles, actually. She wasn't very well known at the time. Arlie Ermey, (laughs) who's always, always a pleasure. And it is the story of two detectives, Mills and Somerset. So Somerset is played by Morgan Freeman. He is a weathered detective in a nameless city. It's any city, USA, basically. It's it's dreary. It rains all the time. It, they never, it's never specified where they are. Somerset is just days from his retirement. And yeah, he's a weathered guy. He's seen a lot and he's ready to, to pack it in. And then Mills is played by Brad Pitt and he is a young detective. He has a bit of a a troubled history on the force. He had an incident with the shooting, a, a justified shooting, but the shooting, he hasn't been on the job very long. He he just made detective and he's kind of shadowing Somerset. And basically they stumble upon a serial killer case where the killer is reenacting the seven deadly sins with different murders. Starts with gluttony and then evolves from there and somerset winds up kind of sticking around a little longer than he's supposed to because he wants to see this to the end and he knows mills isn't ready for this mills does not know that mills is a very eager cocky and it's more depth than that though that's that's the interesting thing one of the many interesting things about seven you know there's often in film uh this this pairing of the the weathered and and green detective and you know it's it's uh it's a thing but this one is interesting because it does have that but the characters are definitely uh, more complex than that the way they interact with each other is very very interesting and very important to the film so they wind up investigating this together and Somerset says you know the world is crap, basically. Don't expect the best out of people. You're not going to get it. What you would say is the cynical or realistic way of looking at this from someone who's been on the job for so long. At the same time, he cares enough to want to stick around and and solve it. So that's an interesting, interesting thing happening there. And then 
Mills is very like, yeah, things suck, but he he wants to make it better. He believes that there is something worthwhile in the world and that Somerset is just, you know, jaded, basically. But they come together and they, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt work wonderfully together. Absolutely perfect. And they work on this case together and um, there's all these different murders that obviously continue to happen based on the seven deadly sins more and more horrific as they go and the killer we we don't see him for quite some time and it's more speculation about who this guy is and that's another thing that they differ on of course is somerset talks about how he's not just a crazy guy he has this whole plan he's meticulous and patient and that's why he's terrifying whereas mills has more of the idea that well he's you know he's a crazy he's he's a crazy fuck (laughs) he's running around you know he just he wants to you know take him down basically they obviously are expressing two very different concepts that then makes us kind of as the audience mull over ourselves without even really thinking about it just because the characters are interesting, they're complicated, they're likable. We are invested in them and therefore care what they think and say. And they think very different things yet come together. So it's interesting for the audience to kind of maybe see which way they think. So things progress. Eventually, the killer shows up, really exceptionally played by Kevin Spacey. All three of them come together and have these interactions and if you've never seen seven one where have you been (laughs) you have to see it but if you've never seen it i i don't want to give it away but i also don't want to underplay how genius the culmination of this film is the climax of this film but basically one of the things that i think is really brilliant about the film is that the the killer the crazy person is the one who speaks the most truth it's through a distorted warped lens but it's uh, honest and true and the way things play out in this brilliant brilliant finale is it it makes it so that what the the killer wants and what the audience wants are the same thing even though this is not a good thing in the broad picture of the film and of the characters and of what's you know best for them it's not the best thing but it, it it's that's the brilliance of it is what he wants to happen is what we want to happen to even though it is not what should happen and the ending of this film it does have one of my favorite last lines in any movie and i am going to say it so if you don't want to know skip forward like 15 seconds but the final line is spoken by morgan freeman he is quoting hemingway i believe and the quote is the world is a fine place and worth fighting for i agree with the second part and that's the last line in the movie is such a great quote it's one of my favorite quotes so yeah this film is very dark and dreary but it is also it has it actually has humor in it uh, to come in and give a little levity in this 
seemingly relentless <laughs> darkness and rape. It is just a really phenomenal film. Very different and just, yeah, an amazing entry into the, you know, the serial killer film and still stands out. It holds up. It always holds up. And it's it's just really an exceptional film. So it's really established uh, Fincher as a director, you know. So that Alien 3 thing was in the past, and this was him showing showing us what he really has and what he's really all about, and it was wonderful. His follow-up came two years later with The Game, which starred uh, Michael Douglas and Sean Penn. And it that was a really unique film, a really interesting film. I think it's probably, I would say it's his most underrated film. It, it did fairly well when it came out, and he was riding on the, you know, the seven success. But even though Seven wasn't his first movie that he directed, it felt like it. So I feel like the game was sort of that that sophomore sophomore slump, <laughs> not on his end, but just that the audience maybe is expecting something a little different. Um, still, it's a really twisted little gem and uh, maybe goes off the rails a little bit at the end, but uh, really well-crafted uh, film. Then after that... Another couple of years later, in 1999, came Fight Club. So Fight Club was adapted from the debut novel of Chuck Palahniuk. Chuck Palahniuk, at the time, he became very quickly one of my favorite authors. Kind of a an extra-twisted Vonnegut <laughs> In, in his style of writing, most especially his first four novels, which would be Fight Club, Survivor, Invisible Monsters, and Choke, are all just exquisite. So Fight Club, the film, was was adapted from that novel. And it was polarizing at the time. It actually did not do that great at the box office, which is something I had forgotten because it has become such a huge thing. I would say, I guess you'd say it's a it's a cult film. It has quite a following now. At the time, yeah, it was really polarizing. People really loved it, myself included. But there was also um, the idea that it was just misogynistic and dangerous, and yeah, just running wild with its rampant misogyny. I guess, which it is sort of, but. I would say, especially if you've read the book, but I think it translates in the movie too, that it's really a commentary about about men and, you know, the, the modern man, at least at that time. And that idea that they've, they've softened, been more sensitive and that they need to toughen up and be men and they don't know how to be men in, anymore and all this, which is horrible. But I mean, it's commenting on that to me because it all doesn't really end up so great for everybody the film does alter the ending from the book and i think the book's ending is is better with that but i enjoy the ending of the film i went and saw this film in the theater when it came out i saw the game too i think i've seen most of fitcher's films since seven in the theater but i i was probably one of the few few people in line for fight club who was there for Edward Norton as opposed to Brad Pitt. I was 21 at the time. That's not to say I don't like Brad Pitt. I think he's 
great actor and I like him very much. But Edward Norton is, is something special to me. So I was really there for him. But they, they work great together. And Helen de Bonham Carter as uh, Marla. Marla Singer is uh, iconic. But I... I I just rewatched the film and I would say it doesn't exactly hold up in the post Me Too, post 9-11 world, especially, I guess, if it's somebody seeing it for the first time, they'd probably just be horrified because I don't think that could be made now. But it's a wonderful movie and the performances are fantastic. It's not perfect. It definitely has flaws, but it's it's pretty great. And uh, Meatloaf just passed a while back. He plays a great character in it, Bob. Really, really great. So Fight Club, like I said at the time, didn't do huge business. It was definitely uh, controversial, but has since been quite quite lauded, actually, I think. And uh, rightfully so. The next film that he did was Panic Room with Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart very young, playing Jodie Foster's daughter, and she looked so much like her. It, it was more commercial of a film for him. He definitely got to step it up a bit, and it's a really, really, again, really well-crafted film. That one, I think you really start seeing, like, really obviously seeing the meticulous nature of his direction. It's it's a real tense, kind of nonstop, well-paced, well-made film. So then after that... In 2007, Fincher released what I believe to be his masterpiece, and that would be Zodiac, which is a film that is based on a true crime novel by Robert Graysmith. He was a cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle and wound up sort of embroiled in this whole Zodiac mystery it became a lifelong <laughs> obsession to discover who the Zodiac Killer was, which has never actually been solved. But he believed that he he knew who it was, and he made a very good argument for it, and that's the basis of the film. And the film, I don't even know how to start with this. It's a, it's a lengthy film that just flows perfectly, just the right pacing and tension and one it really explores the obsession not just of gray smith but of everyone involved in looking for the zodiac trying to solve this there's jake gyllenhaal is robert gray smith and mark ruffalo and anthony edwards are two of the detectives that were so integral in in investigating the zodiac killings and just trying for years to piece it together and to solve it to find find the zodiac um and then Robert Downey Jr., who is just exquisite, plays Paul Avery, the reporter for the Chronicle, who uh, kind of, you know, poked the stick at the Zodiac and uh, wound up getting a letter himself. And uh, he was uh, he was very troubled man in that he he drank a lot. He was he was self destructive, and but he was very charismatic. And Robert Downey Jr. plays him wonderfully. But basically, it's it just really really beautifully shows how this obsession affects all all of these different people's lives from the detectives reporters how it really destroys people <laughs> it destroys them it eats at them it yeah ruins lives and but it's it's something that 
people have like dedicated their lives to. And so that's an amazing thing. It's also has these amazing sequences in it. There's this phenomenal scene with Jake Gyllenhaal in the basement with this um, this guy who used to work at a movie theater who, uh, you know, could be the Zodiac. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It doesn't really dawn on him until he's there. It's it's a very creepy scene, very tense that you just don't know what's going to happen. You're holding your breath the whole time. There's so many sequences like that in the film. This also really, really is a good example of David Fincher's meticulous nature. It's very similar to like Stanley Kubrick that I, when I talked about him, probably less cruel than Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick did have a tendency to be cruel in his his perfectionism. He got he got the effect that that was needed, but I, it was his morals were maybe questionable. I I don't think Fincher has that. It, it's it's just what he does. It's his style. I feel like if I was a director, which yeah. is not is not something that I would ever be capable of. But if I was, I would be like that kind of perfectionist, meticulous, driving people insane, trying to get everything exactly right. Now, Fincher actually achieves that. But yeah, I mean, definitely different actors react in different ways. He's just known for doing endless amounts of takes. For instance, there is a clip in... It's like a scene, really. It's it's seriously like just a moment in Zodiac when Jake Gyllenhaal just tosses a notebook in his car. And Fincher did over a hundred takes of that, like an insane amount of takes to get it to fall just right, like just the way he wanted. And when you watch the film, that that clip is like probably like two seconds long. So that just shows the intricacy of every little detail of what he does and the final effect of course in in all of his movies but i think really really especially in zodiac is totally worth it it's it's wonderful and it all flows perfectly and he really just does everything exactly how he sees it and he's he's you know a true artist that he sees it in his mind and just his whole you know, probably his whole whole desire is just to fulfill what he sees in his head. And I feel like he very successfully does that, and especially in Zodiac, even if he's driving his actors insane. And then the one scene that I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about horror moments, the scene of the, the second murder, the second murder that they depict of the couple who is out and they're just having a picnic and the Zodiac shows up and very brutally one kind of screws with them as though he's just going to rob them and then stabs them both that scene is i think it's one of the best scenes in the film and it's one of the scariest scenes that i've ever seen i think shutter actually did have that one on their list but it's one i was talking about that's just in daylight it's just these two people having a picnic it it really really displays what is frightening about these ideas is that one minute you're just sitting there, you know, talking or doing, you know, nothing that you would even think of as, you know, consequential. And then everything changes, you know, in a split second. And that's what happens. Um, and it's daylight and it's it's just a lovely day and they're 
sitting out there and it, it just, it seems so benign, similar again to what I was saying also about like the gang of Alfred Hitchcock films, that it just seems like nothing could touch this. And even if it did, it wouldn't be really frightening because it's, it's daylight. It's, it's a benign time, a benign place and nothing's really going to happen. And then like the most horrific thing happens and it is so scary and yeah fincher just depicts it perfectly he gosh she was very again meticulous with down to even like what the actors were wearing being the same as what the real people were wearing things like that but yeah it's just this amazing amazing film that honestly shows three murders pretty much like in the first half hour of the film and then the rest of it is the people trying to solve it dealing with it and it's just enthralling it also received zero oscar nominations it was beloved by critics it i think it did fairly well i think it's one of those that's lived on in infamy (laughs) since because it's just so good it's just such an exceptional film but at the time, yeah, it's it's pretty shocking that that's the David Fincher film that really didn't get any love. But I would definitely argue that it's his uh, greatest greatest work, his masterwork. After that, in 2008, he did The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which was his most successful commercially and got the most Oscar nominations of any of its films. It is a really beautifully filmed work. It is not one of my personal favorites. It doesn't connect with me the way the others do, which is funny because it is his most successful one if you're looking at awards and box office. I'm not saying it's not a good film. I know a lot of people love it. It's just not one of my favorites. 2010, he did The Social Network. It also got a lot of nominations, wonderful performances. It's about Facebook, the founding of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and basically all these things that are pretty difficult to wrap your head around. And it's just translated into this easy to understand film so that you totally, you get all of the crap that happened and all of the emotion behind it. And it's, it's, it is a really great film. And also Trent Reznor and uh, Atticus Ross did the score for it and they won an Oscar, which I was thrilled about as I am a huge Trent Reznor fan, goes back a long way as I'm sure there are many of you listening feel the same but uh, yeah nine inch nails has been a big thing for me one of my favorites so i i thought it was pretty awesome that they won a oscar for that and i also it was one of those that the score was actually something that i noticed it's it's really really adds to the film the way that a score should and is memorable and well well deserved in 2011 fincher directed the girl with the dragon tattoo which was an adaptation of the steve larson novel of course, he had the the trilogy, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. I read all of those. I also saw the Swedish films, which were great, with Nomi Rapace. She was fantastic. But I really liked, really liked Fincher's adaptation and was disappointed that uh, the studios decided not to complete the trilogy, that that's, that's just the only movie that they wound up doing. I thought it was a very true adaptation to the book. And Rooney Mara 
as Lizbeth was fantastic. And I thought Daniel Craig was great. And again, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the music. I thought it was a really great film. The next film he did was uh, a few years later was Gone Girl, which is another adaptation of a book, a Gillian Flynn book, who Gillian Flynn is one of my very favorite authors. When are you going to write another book, Gillian? I know you're doing lots of other awesome stuff, but please just give me another novel. But Gone Girl was based on her extremely successful and breathtakingly brilliant book. It also garnered a lot of a lot of love from critics and awards and rightfully so it's a an excellent movie as was the the most recent film that he uh released in 2020 which was mank about herman mankowitz the uh screenwriter of citizen kane it's in black and white it's a little different for david fincher but still i i feel like it has that specific eye that he has and it's well thought out and executed but it is a little different vibe gary oldman's great uh, amanda seyfried really really solid film but if you've never seen a david fincher film and you just want to know where to start my three would be 1995 7 1999's fight club and 2007 zodiac so 2020 was the last uh, film that he had. He does have a film coming out. Don't know when yet, but it's going to be another Netflix release like Mank was. It's called The Killer. I believe it's based off of a graphic novel series. I know that it stars Michael Fassbender and I believe Tilda Swinton. I don't know, but I'm definitely there. I think it was something that was filmed very quickly, like within weeks. So can't wait to see what he did there. He's also uh, done a lot of producing of the television he produced, a House of Cards. He also uh, directed the first episode and he won an Emmy for that. Excellent, excellent series. You know, before before Kevin Spacey went completely off the deep end and started giving us Christmas videos that we, we didn't ask for, but never knew we wanted. And then he also produced uh, Mindhunter, and Love, Death, and Robots. Lots of great stuff there. Such a special director. Again, because how obsessive he is, honestly. It, it pays off. He, he makes the most spectacular things. Mia Noir. He has those desaturated colors and shadows and just his use of lighting, or the lack of lighting, and sinister themes an awful lot of the time. Even if it's not obvious. like. With a serial killer, it could be Mark Zuckerberg, or it could be it could be anything. But he definitely just excels at at that. And I'll just finish off my my talk about about David Fincher by quoting his own thoughts on what his style is all about, what his films are all about. He said, "In order for something to be evil." It almost has to cloak itself as something else. I think people are perverts. I've maintained that. That's the foundation of my career. <laughs> so that is David Fincher, clearly one of our great filmmakers. And I'm going to throw out that I, I, a while back on the Paul Thomas Anderson um, episode, tentatively put him in the fifth spot. At this point, I'm not sure what my list is going to look like, but I still think Paul Thomas Anderson is a pretty huge contender, but I'm going to say David Fincher is probably 
possibly even a higher contender. So right now, I think if we're just talking about the fifth spot, we're duking it out between Paul Thomas Anderson and David Fincher. But yeah, exceptional, exceptional filmmakers. And let's see. So we've made it through 10 episodes. You may be wondering how many episodes are there going to be? Well, I actually do have an idea of this. I am being a little withholding about it. But I will say that we are nearing probably the halfway point. A lot of directors to discuss, and I can't wait. In two weeks, we are going to be discussing Mike Nichols. So come on back. Talk at you later.